Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film critic and MTV girl. And I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and the pride of Lowell, Massachusetts, right here. The way this podcast works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love, and this is the fourth installment of our Christian Bale retrospective. So far, we've looked at his early days as a young romantic leading man in films like Little Women, we looked at his breakthrough performance in American Psycho, and we looked at his introduction to sort of mainstream blockbuster fame in Batman Begins. And this week, we're going to look back at the film that won Christian his Oscar, David O. Russell's 2010 boxing drama, The Fighter. Head body, head body, head body. Head body, head body. Head body. You know, that was the one thing I remembered about this film. And I was like, oh, I bet that that must have been a thing they said once. And how quirky of me that I remembered it from this film I haven't seen for years. And then I rewatched it. It was like, oh, that's because they say it every other line. That's why I remembered it. I did not expect there to be a scene where he literally goes yeah okay it was called head body you know I, I hit him in the head he covers his head and then i hit him in the body and he covers his body and then i hit him in the head again i thought that was they lay it all out funny. for you here uh so ned part of what we'll be talking about this week in addition to boxing strategy is sort of this critically acclaimed portion of christian bale's career which you know has continued to this day he's been the fighter is the first thing that he sort of gets major awards attention for and since then he has been nominated for a total of five golden globes four baftas and four oscars including obviously winning this one for the fighter so before we get into like christian specifically i sort of want to know are you an oscar person i've actually don't know if i've ever asked you this before is this sort of like a thing you grew up watching a thing you watch now uh grew up watching yes watch now pretty much no uh Mm. i really looked forward to it as a kid you know i feel like uh the days of sort of Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg hosting. I think those were some of the first ones I tuned into. I found them extremely funny, extremely entertaining. I loved seeing all the glamorous stars as themselves. I just kind of fell off during college, and I've tuned in for a couple. There are some Oscar moments from the past few years that I remember clearly. Um, I clearly remember Shirley Bassey singing Goldfinger. That made an impression on me, although that was probably like nine years ago. I think the last time I tuned into the Oscars uh, was in, must have been early 2019 to make sure that Black Panther's Ruth Carter won for costume yes, design. Yes, what a good win. And that uh, Into the Spider-Verse won Best Animated Another Film. Another great win. Uh, I really was just, you know, bracing myself to get angry if those things didn't happen. They did happen. Uh, I don't think I've watched the Oscars. Did they? Did they do one last year? They are doing them at the end of April, as we were recording, okay. sort of early April. Yeah, so they pushed them back for COVID. They pushed them. They really extended the window. So we've basically been in Oscars. Well, this will now be my segue to say I'm very into the Oscars and have been my whole life. And okay. I can't – of course, it's very normal for someone to not watch the Oscars. But somehow, to me, a person that's, like, into acting in movies not watching the Oscars is, like, unfathomable to me. Like, mm-hmm. I really can't – understand that life but anyway so they have pushed award season like really really extended it so we've basically been in oscar season for 12 million years now (laughs) but it will be soon soon be coming to an end it will be i think they're trying to hold them in person we might be releasing this episode after they've happened and our listeners will know better than us but yeah i i love the oscars do i love them i watch them (laughs) you know it's (laughs) a mixed bag every year but it does feel 
to me like an essential thing I have to watch. So I was there, you know, when Christian won his Oscar. Formative moment, I guess. I'm not even sure if I fully remember that. Had you seen this film at the time? Did you know what he was up for? I did see the fight. I'm pretty sure I saw the fighter in theaters. I have a memory of doing that. I I was not an obsessive to the point where I would have to see every Oscar film like growing up. Mm Mm-hmm. But if it was a big one, and certainly I was such a Christian Bale fan then, that I would have seen it. Sure. Yeah, I have such an interesting, an interesting thing about my sort of like, what I keep saying relationship to Christian Bale is if I have a personal, really, like, I have a relationship that feels personal to me. I do not know this man. Oh, feels that but way to me as well. What's funny to me is that, you know, I just happened to really get obsessed with him in high school, which is not that crazy. I graduated in 2008, so it was not like a crazy, you know, era for me to have to have liked him. But no. the fact that I got that obsessed with him in high school, then I went on to sort of really get into film criticism. And simultaneously, he went on to become one of our most, like, critically acclaimed actors. Like, the likelihood of those three things happening... It's very funny to me that this is still a relevant person. Yes. In our, you know, he got a vi- he got a nomination for Vice just a couple of years ago, last year. So it, it's just funny how he has, you know, I have had many high school obsessions that are no longer relevant. And this is the one that's really. He continues stuck. to come across your path and be relevant to your, your career and your interests. And yeah. And he's still going. He's still going. So in our Batman Begins episode, we really kind of looked at like one of the formative eras for Christian's public image. And that was the time it was like 2005. He stars as this fairly intense Batman. And this is right on the heels of losing all that weight for the machinist. So that was sort of, I think, solidified one public image of him. And then this period we're sort of getting into now, this period right after, you know, me me graduating high school, going into college, mm-hmm. this 2008 to 2010 window is this other, I think, really formative era for his public persona. This kind of kicks off with the release of The Dark Knight in 2008, which is both a hugely successful, like, huge deal movie in its own right, but then also has this, like, added layer of intensity because of Heath Ledger's death. Mm-hmm. And that brings it even more in, you know, I, I think that, like, colors the way the movie's perceived. It colors, obviously, the way the press around the movie was. And then Heath goes on to win the Oscar, so it almost, like, elevates this movie even higher culturally and and it's kind of shocking how culturally relevant or i guess in the zeitgeist that movie still feels oh absolutely and then on the heels of that you have christian bale starring in terminator salvation which i think is mostly relevant and then that's the movie where the tape leaks yeah of him yelling on set so that's sort of like you have the intensity of the dark knight you have the intensity of this terminator salvation leak and then in 2010 he does the fighter and he wins the SAG Award that year, he wins the Golden Globe, and then he wins the Oscar, all of which were his first nominations for those awards. And then it's almost like the the award success sort of like puts the earlier public unrest to bed. And I feel like really from then he's just really solidified into this. Like, I think people now first think of his MO as this sort of, you know, serious, intense, well-respected method actor that makes interesting studio movies and most people assume is unfunny and American until he gives an award season speech. And then people are like, wait, he's British and weird. Where did (laughs) this come from? Yeah. Which I think has to do with his keeping. He really keeps out of the public eye in a big way, which makes these, these award speeches that he gives these suddenly moments where he's thrust up there sort of interesting. I mean, he does press junkets. He did, 
an interview for this, which you showed me, mm-hmm. where he and Mark Wahlberg are put on the spot by Pete Travers to sing, and it's just one of the <laughs> weirdest, you know, singing the Powerpuff Girl. Yes, to a, to a completely bemused Pete Travers. Yeah, and Mark Wahlberg gets. I'm not sure he knows what to make of it. Um, no, but it's just the fact that like when the light shines on Christian Bale, you kind of see why he exists as kind of a half recluse part mm-hmm. of the time. It seems well, like here's a- what's funny to me, and this speaks to the weirdness of me having been obsessed with him in high school and then him continuing to be relevant. Yeah. And that to me, this is all normal, right? Like this was when I was doing my deep dives and watching all my Christian Bale interviews and watching, you know, newsies behind the scenes and whatever. I'm like, oh yeah, I totally get his vibe. So this is the vibe I I project onto him because he is, as you say, he's not a he, he's not interested in being a movie star. He really just wants to do the craft of acting and then have a private life, which I'm totally down for him and all actors to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think then a lot of people project the intensity of his characters onto him, and they're like shocked when he goes up on stage and he's like British and jovial and I mean intensely jovial, but also pretty legitimately funny. And his Golden Globe speech for the fighter, he like just roast the the um hollywood foreign press during this he's like oh yeah i thought you guys were all like a bunch of weirdos i didn't know what you did but now that you give me an award i think you're all awesome and you're the best <laughs> organ-. he's like really just making fun of the golden globes at the golden globes yeah so to me i'm like christian being christian and to everyone else they're like what this is not at all the vibe i expected from this i think actor. it's it's consistent for me with the intense method acting and the uh intense leaked explosion in that i think he seems like a high key guy even in mm-hmm. those things i think there is a what i would call a high key energy sort of uh vibrating out his eyeballs um but not in a way that seems alien or unapproachable mm-hmm. just high key there is such a there's an intensity that he channels in different directions i think sometimes for, in not good ways And sometimes in weirdly positive ways, he did this thing when he was filming this movie called Flowers of War. I think that's what it's called, which I've actually never seen. But I think they were filming in China. And he went to go try to – he kind of purposely went to get arrested trying to visit this Chinese human rights activist in order to draw attention to the fact that this man was sort of – I think he's basically like locked in his own home by the government, but the government won't acknowledge this. Mm. And so I probably should have read way more about this story before I just bring it up now. Um, But there's like an intensity. There's an intensity to that where I think he'll just like want to do something. And this speaks to like, you know, losing the weight for roles. There's like, I don't know. There's an intensity that can be channeled in the like, you know, losing your mind on the set of a movie direction. And then also on the like trying to draw attention to, you know, Chinese human rights issues. And it's sort of an interesting melding i think yeah yeah for sure anyway that was a tangent so let's get back on track now we're going to be talking about the fighter as we said so this is the period after batman begins which is 2005 so five years before this movie this is when christian obviously has a lot more clout as an actor and he sort of really starts to work with a lot of interesting and acclaimed directors he does he works with terrence malick in the new world and Werner herzog and rescue dawn and michael mann and public enemies but What's interesting about the fighter is that, like, the auteur, you know, quote-unquote auteur of the fighter is really mm-hmm. Mark Wahlberg. Hmm. He's the one that's attached first. He he knew of Mickey Ward, the boxer that he plays, as the sort of local sports hero for Boston, which is where Mark Wahlberg is from. Um, 
And so he's attached to this both as a producer and as the star, sort of, there's no director at this point. He's, he's, you know, the person that's steering this whole thing. And he eventually, they, I think he originally tries to get Martin Scorsese to do it because they had just done The Departed together and Darren Aronofsky is attached for a while. But Wahlberg eventually gets David O. Russell on board because they had worked together on Three Kings and I Heart Huckabees. And Wahlberg is also the person who gets Christian on board because their daughters went to the same preschool. So they just kind of <sighs> knew each other socially from that. So that's how he's able to, like, get him the script and and um get him on board so there's like this interestingly kind of scrappy quality to this you know the way this film came together it's often framed as mark Wahlberg's passion project and then to me it's almost inexplicable how this film went on to be such a like a really massive you know financial hit and then earns seven oscar nominations and wins two of them and kicks off this run of America and the Academy just being obsessed with David O. Russell films for like the next three or four years. And say, is there something about David O. Russell that industry people just really love? Because those movies, I've never seen Silver Linings Playbook. I have seen American Hustle. I hadn't seen this film until last night, but now I have. Oh, I didn't know that. That's no, this is my first viewing of The Fighter. And to begin to give my critical appraisal of it. Mm -hmm. I think all of these movies that I've seen, I've thought they were good, but not not, not really transcendent. Yeah, they're fine. They're fine. They're totally fine, watchable movies. Yeah, this was <laughs> a, just a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what I, I don't know what I expected from this. It did surprise me a couple times. But I just kind of was like, oh, and you know, he beats the guy, and so it's great. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, it is fascinating. So yeah, as you said, David O. Russell does... He hadn't done a movie since I Heart Huckabees, which is 2004. He And I mean, we would need an entire other podcast to unpack David O. Russell's career and also like... Mythos, very weird and like life. Yeah, and like very problematic relationship with actors yeah. where he publicly like gets into intense fights with them, but then somehow they still seem to like him or maybe they're, I don't know. Yeah, There's didn't George so Clooney take there. a swing at him on Three Kings? Yeah, and and they were like famously in a feud. He was in a feud with Lily Tomlin on set. It, he um actually in, in American Hustle, he was like, I mean, I think this is the question of like, is this part of the process or is this abusive? Because I think he was like, I think he kind of really wore Amy Adams down to the point where actually Christian Bale comes in to defend Amy Adams from this sort of like intensity that David O. Russell's directing at her. Which on the one hand, it's like, yay, good Chris, good job, Christian. But then they're also making another movie together coming up. I don't know. So the The overwhelming number of problematic figures in Hollywood is... Yeah, overwhelming. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not ready to. Uh, I guess weigh in <laughs> definitively on David Russell, but I'm not, I don't like the vibes I'm getting off this guy. I mean, if you yeah. got beef with Lily Tomlin, that doesn't feel right? good to me. No, it, it does not feel, feel good. good at all. But anyway, for whatever reason, the fighter really kicks off this thing of the Academy and America. Like again, these are movies. The fighter, A Silver Linings Playbook, and American Hustle are all really successful financially. Yeah. I mean, each one basically makes more than the last, and each one gets more Oscar nominations than the last. And then he makes Joy, and everyone's just like, we're done with this. We don't care about this anymore. <laughs> that movie kind of does nothing. It gets a perfunctory Jennifer Lawrence nomination. And then he hasn't made a movie since. And his he, is, he does have, as I mentioned, another project coming up, a sort of un, unknown, untitled project that Christian's supposed to be in. Hmm. But yeah, it is weird how really it was like, 
you know, 2010 to 2013, it was just like, we cannot get enough of these perfectly fine comedic films. Yeah, he was what you would call a darling. He was a media and uh, yeah, and he was a film darling, I guess. And so that kicks off with the fighter, which I'm I'm completely with you on everything you said. I think perfectly fine, like re- in its best moments, really enjoyably watchable, very sweet, a feel good without being too sentimental movie. I will that- say, just to add to that, I'm sorry to yeah, interrupt please. you, but I, no. but I. I think maybe knowing that it was going to end the way it did, you might have on a rewatch felt this was a feel good. I was tense during this movie. I was like, mm. this is so miserable. God, he's yeah, got this. That's fair. Everybody's in a terrible situation and this guy's just going to get his lights knocked out and it's going to end on a downer note. So I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised that, you know, it does have a sort of a triumphant ending. I assumed that it was going to be like, I don't know. They all circle the drain and they end up yeah. suffering. Well, maybe that is the key then, that these are movies that sort of dance around darker themes, but deliver sort of unexpected uplift. And that's what people are connecting to about them. People do like that. People do go in for that. But yeah. I guess my just my overall take on this movie is like, yeah, this is a perfectly fine boxing movie. Mm-hmm. Why did this get a million Oscar nominations? I could not tell you, but I could tell you that I think Christian's nomination and win for this movie is very well-deserved. While I don't know if I have a ton to say about The Fighter as a perfectly fine boxing movie, I do feel like there's a lot to say about Christian's performance here, and I'm very excited to get into it all with you. So first, I'm, I also didn't know this was your first time watching it, so what is your what is your takeaway on like Christian's... What was your experience like watching Christian in this film for the first time? Uh, I... F- Found it very interesting and unpredictable and dynamic. I mean, as I say, I didn't know if this was going to end with, like, his tragic death. I knew nothing. Or his, like, getting into a vicious blood feud with Mickey. Um, or, you know, you know, living the rest of his life sort of, like, in a haze in the flop house with his people over there. Uh I just wasn't, I wasn't sure what to expect. And he is charged and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And also, one of our sort of consistent takeaways with him, so charming. And mm-hmm. I think that's, he seems to really, he seems to really be into playing charming and dangerous guys. And that's definitely going on here in a way that's not quite so uh, shocking and horrifying as it is in, say, American Psycho. But, um, mm-hmm. But he's, I think it's so interesting that he has this sort of, this sort of dangerous volatility in him, but in moments, like, there's a scene, I think it's the first time that Charlene comes over and meets the family, and they're like, who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? And Charlene is, I guess we didn't, we gave no context for this film, but it's about two brothers, one used to be a boxer, and now is a, uh, is addicted to crack, and, but is still trying to coach his younger brother, Mark Wahlberg's character. Charlene is Amy Adams, who starts dating Mark Wahlberg, based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Everything else is in every other boxing movie you've ever seen in your life. Yes. Um, so Charlene, Amy Adams, in maybe we'll say more later, I think a great performance. I'm really a huge fan of hers. She comes over, she's meeting everybody, and it's this really acrimonious moment. And it's kind of the first, the first moment of Mark Wahlberg being like, sort of starting to take his side against the family. And... 
Christian Bale, who I think has shown up, I think it's one of the times that he's been like picked up from like the mom goes over and picks him up as he's jumping out the window. Mm-hmm. And a very funny recurring bit. Yes. Darkly funny. Yeah, dark alarming. Alarming. Cause you yeah. you know, you see these patterns of people who just can't can't help but dig themselves back into a hole. And he's come in from that and is so Mr. Nice Guy charming all the way through it. He's really conciliatory um, in a way that I suppose is similar to what he does at the end of the film where he goes to sort of bury the hatchet. But it at that point feels like he's probably high at the time and he's sort of coasting and just has this instinctive charm. Mm -hmm. But you know it can also turn on a dime. So I find that really engaging to watch. And he's he's got a it's it's a good portrait of a guy who is entertaining in his life to his friends and peers. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite scene in the movie and the best scene of the performance for me is the sort of opening montage where of him on the street. Of him on the street, sort of walking around, like filming yeah. the documentary, and you, you don't at the moment realize that the documentary is going to essentially exploit him and his family uh, and cast them in this really negative light. It's just, you see this guy who's kind of on top of the world with his brother and his friends and they're walking around and he's keyed up and he's wiry and, uh, and uh, you know, cracking jokes and doing impressions and they're doing their like play, play boxing things mm-hmm. and he does the uppercut and does this, Dah! it's just his little, yeah. It's his really face. his face is he's just doing really fun animated stuff and it's a good I think in that moment you see I'd say a pretty authentic not not Hollywoodish but an authentic portrayal of those kind of people who just are the sort of life of the party uh like I don't know luminous figures that you can mm-hmm. meet like a low true local legend yeah local legend it's based on a real person so he has a lot of sort of and it based on a real living person who he spent mm-hmm. a lot of time hanging out with Dickie Eklund um was you see him i think at the end credits of this movie yes. right and then he also he like Christian Bale shouts him out at the Oscars so he comes on stage with him at the SAG awards when he wins his award like Christian was really big on on centering Dickie more so than his own you know process of acting i think he was more interested in just highlighting the real person but he i think to prepare for this role would sort of follow dickie around and study his mannerisms and talk to people about him and get and and dickie himself does seem to be a the sort of over-the-top character that you almost wouldn't believe Mm -hmm. would exist but does exist clearly and i think one thing that's great about the christian bale performance is that it is that sort of very captivating method acty method acty that was not really a phrase um <laughs> like transformative chameleon performance but it it still feels grounded and like unshowy like in some ways it's a big showy performance and in other ways it is not nearly as big and showy as it could have been and i think it's that line that he so carefully treads that makes it so captivating and makes him believable as a genuine local legend as opposed to sort of an actor playing someone who is a local legend, if that makes sense. I agree. And I think that, you know, you can differentiate that from something like American Psycho, because with American Psycho, he's creating this type of character that isn't really like anything 
that you will see or encounter in the world. The, the, like, the like insane hodgepodge of mannerisms and modes that Patrick Bateman is, is like, it's a different kind of acting to kind of manufacture mm-hmm. that grisly satire. But what he's doing in The Fighter, as I say, when he's larger than life, he's larger than life in a way that actually is true to life. He's... Yeah. And when they when they do show that clip in the la- in the end credits, you're like, "Ooh, wow, that's a that's a solid impression he did of this guy." Mm-hmm. Now, acting is not just, you know, that's that's not necessarily a barometer for good acting is accurate impressions. But in biopics, that tends to be something that you know people like seeing. It is it is rewarding to the audience to get to see them show that clip, and it is a really solid impression. And so the ways in which it is big are ways that feel authentic to characters you meet in your life who have that they try to sort of live all the time with that larger than life energy and i think he does a good job of showing how that without ever i don't know this being said explicitly in the text of the movie that he's a guy who has this larger than life personality to you know sort of shellac over a a deep hurt or a deep Mm -hmm. want that's inside of him. This insecurity and some of his like bitterness. And I think that's why And then a literal addiction. And a literal on top of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Which which is a a uh, a cause and a symptom of of that sort of inner hurt that he has. At least that's the way it shows. Which is which is why I think it works as I say, I think the movie does effectively have you wondering, like, is this gonna go well? How could it go well? Cause in the middle it seems it seems really difficult. Like he is on a self-destructive path, and so's mom. And it's it's funny the structure of the movie with Mark Wahlberg at the at the center of it because mm-hmm. in this there's a later I scene. Mean, just Mark Wahlberg, I just find to be inherently comedic. I don't know how much of this is Mark Wahlberg or just the pure influence of that Andy Samberg SNL sketch. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg talks to animals. Every time I see, oh my gosh, can you, you, can you to, hit me with your impression? Yeah. Well, he just go, he he just goes around and literally talks to animals, and at the end he goes, "Say hi to your mother for me." He's <laughs> like, "Hey, chicken, you're a chicken. How's it like being a chicken?" Okay, say hi to your mother for me. <laughs> it's that is what I think of as Mark Wahlberg more so than the real Mark Wahlberg. And so anytime I watch Mark Wahlberg, that is first and foremost in my mind. I sympathize with this character as someone who's really sort of uh, conflict-averse. In a scene maybe two-thirds of the way through when Dickie has just come back from prison and he's broken the news to him, you know, I made an agreement not to train with you. And Dickie and Alice, the mom, played by Melissa mm-hmm. Leo, another... Who also won an Oscar Who also this. won an Oscar and I would say also well-deserved. Um, they're saying, how can you make that statement? And then... Uh, Charlene and O'Keefe, his other trainer, are saying, like, you can't talk to them at all or else this deal is off. And he's just in the middle, like, yeah, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want my family here. What's the problem with that? And yeah. I'm like, I sympathize with him just wanting to <laughs> sort of have it all. And I I paused, I put my headphones and I turned to Emily and I said, what they've done with this movie, Emily, I don't think you'd like it. I think you'd find it stressful and upsetting, but they've created this sort of moral interpersonal paradox and then they've just put this himbo in the middle of it to try to navigate it and i just don't know i just don't know how he's gonna make it out and uh and ultimately kind of he does he does you know christian bale 
uh, kind of patches things up with Charlene and uh, Mark Wahlberg beats the asshole Irish guy and <laughs> and then it you know cuts to the like epilogue titles that are like everything went pretty well after that good for them you know yeah I'm now I wish I could remember how I felt watching this for the first time if it played that way and I'm sure it did of the intensity of not knowing how it was going to turn out versus hey it all worked out okay in the yeah. end uh, one thing I wanted to point out, a little quote here. So mm-hmm. at his um, in his Golden Globe speech, I actually think Christian Bale said something that was very nice and I think very true about acting. Where So he wins and he says, you can only give a loud performance like the one I gave when you have a quiet anchor and a stoic character. This is in reference to what he thought Mark Wahlberg brought to the film. Mm-hmm. He said, I've played that one many times and it never gets any notice. Thank you, buddy. Kudos to you for that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten away with it. And I do think that that's, that is a very accurate assessment of that you need, if everyone in the movie is equally big, which this movie frequently threatens to be, mm-hmm. <laughs> the bigness does not land the way it needs to. And I do think that this is not maybe my, you know, the most, most compelling Mark Wahlberg performance I've ever seen, but I think that that it is crucial to sort of ground the film. And I think it also speaks to Christian Bale's ability to understand what he brings to a film, what Mark Wahlberg's bringing to a film, and like an, an intelligence beyond just the, I'm going to go hardcore into living my character and forget about everything else. I think it speaks to an, an intelligence about film as storytelling that I think is part of what makes christian bale so good in a way that i don't always respond to in people who have the similar sort of like method method acty reputation as he does those are not the type of actors i tend to gravitate towards Mm -hmm. he's like the exception and i do feel like it's because he's sort of blending that intensity with a little bit of something else and that melds really nicely yeah and it also shows i think some industry savvy and that he recognizes, mm-hmm. you know, I'm up here getting the award for, as I think we mentioned a few episodes ago, one of those most acting awards. Mm-hmm. But you can't do it, you know, without the right balance in the ensemble. And it's a good, it's a good ensemble movie. I, I, I gotta say. Yeah. Well, is it? Is it? I, I don't the, know. Here's the things <laughs> I struggle. Here's the things I struggle with in this movie. I think in its best moments, this movie is very endearing. And empathetic with the brother relationship. I think Mm -hmm. that pretty much always works all the way through. I think there is another side of this movie that is condescending and patronizing in a way that's sort of like, I get that the people that they're, you know, the sort of um, Massachusetts, Boston area, working class, you know, family they're depicting probably is very over the top, over the top in real life. But whereas the Christian Bale performance and the presentation of Dickie sort of like, humanizes him i think especially with the women characters there's a lot of just like let's gawk at them oh my god and isn't this funny and ridiculous that people are like this and it's like if this is so at odds with the intention of your movie which is to look at the humanity of these people to then just be like well these five we don't care about they're just here for goofs and like you should laugh at them and i actually think the amy adams and melissa leo maybe not their performances but sort of how the characters are presented also Mm -hmm. fall into that trap of let's like gawk and laugh at them rather than empathizing with them. And that I found icky on this rewatch. Well, it's sexist, Frank. I mean, yeah, yeah, it just is because one of the first impressions I had, I loved seeing kind of some of these 
sort of schlubby, not Hollywood looking middle aged guys. Like uh yeah. the, the the dad, Jack McGee, who's an actor I hadn't really seen in anything. And uh I was like, Who's this guy playing O'Keefe? He's great. And do you know who that is? Nope. He's playing himself. Really? Yeah. This is the police officer slash trainer. Exactly. Oh, that guy's great. That guy is so good, right? He's, He's really good. So frankly, I think there is a charitable enough humanizing look at some of the, as you say, like working class guys. But the working class women are, it is, it's, I mean, when they're loading all the girls into the car, like the Keystone cops, and the way that their lines are written as this sort of like vapid, they're like a bunch of idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mom has, they do some mixed bag I would say they get it. They do a mixed bag job of humanizing that character. And I think probably Melissa Leo gets some credit for it. But she has depth. She's also so, uh, I don't know, toxic and single-minded at times in a Mm -hmm. way that does not feel equivocal with the way that the male character is treated. So, yeah, I did write write a note during the scene where the mom's like, girls, let's go. We got to go over there now. And they're like, we got to go over to her house. And the girls, yeah, the way they're styled. Yeah, fight sequence. Yeah, I wrote a note that I was like, is this actually championing the working class in the way that I think it thinks it is? I'm not sure. It's a little prurient in the way that it looks at that whole world, which is ironic because they are also sort of, I think, uh, indicting the HBO documentary for doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. And then yet 15 years later, they're also still like, yeah, he's got this whole gaggle of like, ratty-haired, like, uh, brainless, sort of, like, one-mind sisters. I mean, there's, like, little moments with them, but, uh, yeah, it's... I mean, I quoted the MTV girl thing at the start of Mm -hmm. this, but that is, I mean, that is the extent of the characterization is, like, they think Amy Adams is a skank. Isn't that funny? And you're like, I I guess, like, it's not, really, it's not that funny, but you clearly think it is because you make that joke many, many times in this film. Well, also, having a very conspicuous scene of Amy Adams just fully in her underwear... Making out with Mark Wahlberg that is also prominently featured in the trailer. Like, I, I don't know. What, I was like, what are we doing with this? This is... He's really thirsty. Even before that scene, or maybe his DP is. Even before that scene, there are all these sort of like leering, like skirt and leg shots yeah. that are, they're weird. It's like the camera like does like a weird, unnatural like pan down, like yeah. look up Melissa Leo's skirt. It's weird. Well, again, I think that's also the like, ooh, let's anchor this in this very male working class perspective. And it's like, oh, maybe, which is condescending in and of itself, I think, to be like, oh, a male working class person can only ogle a woman. So let's film the women the way we think a working class man would ogle them. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like that is layers of, it's almost like hiding your own weird sexism behind the lens of like, well, this is how working class people are. Yeah. So that stuff didn't work as well as things like, the sort of more improvisational montages, I think, yeah. which feel the behavioral stuff. Yeah, yeah, I find very compelling. Yeah, so mixed bags as, as a as a rating as of a, a film. of a film on that on that metric. Um, as I say, Do you know what I thought. I'm completely interrupting you because I'm gonna trans transfer. What am I trying to say? I'm going to transition. That's the word. There we go. To a little bit of Little Women chat. The performance oh, Caroline. That... Kel Surprise. 
the performance of Christians that we have covered mm-hmm. that reminded me most of this performance is his performance as Laurie in Little Women. Because mm-hmm. I think it is similarly behavioral and that he likes to just be like in Little Women. I think he's like, I like to have a prop. I like to be holding this book or doing this weird little thing with the hat and this. Mm-hmm. And in uh, The Fighter, it's less like prop based, but it's like in his whole physicality, like the way he's moving and walking, like that becomes this very compelling behavioral thing to watch yeah and so i think some of his most compelling scenes in the movie aren't when he's talking it's sort of when he's just listening or being in his body or like you said walking down the street or that scene before they get into the mtv girl fight it's more so the mom and amy adams and the sisters that are fighting and he's just sitting there but the way he's sitting there i find so compelling and it's compelling because he's not trying to draw attention to himself he's just literally sitting there and at one point he kind of moves his mom his, he moves his arm towards his mom. And it, it's like, yeah, this is how people would live in this situation. They do not live like they're in a movie and they're watching this conversation in a way that makes them active in the scene. They're just sitting and kind of zoning out and half listening. That all felt very accurate and compelling to me. Yeah. Yeah, I like the business that he does with his baseball cap always and his pants. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just like touching his clothes, texturing, you know. He's got like, you know, he feels like he's got all this energy, but also... In the way that, like, sometimes life, there's nothing to do with it. He just kind of, like, melts with it. And I also think that, similar to Lori, Christian Bale is clearly putting in a lot of work on his end to completely understand Dickie's arc in terms of when he is high, when he is in his addict phase, but maybe not high at the moment, versus when he gets out of prison and is clean. I think that there are There are, while always feeling like a cohesive character, there are a lot of sort of subtle choices he makes that the movie does not draw attention to Mm -hmm. and that he does not try to, you know, like, oh, this is where I, other than the jumping out the window thing, which is obviously like the movie's big running joke, but there are not, you know, it's not this insane over the top gambit of being high that is so different than the sober. He still has this inherent personality that is inherently weird no matter what in in an endearing way, but um. I think Christian Bale does a really good job of sort of differentiating all of those moments mm-hmm. of how Dicky is. And that was also a really fun thing to sort of track as I was watching. And I do have a quote from a 2010 New York Times article. This was sort of a period because Christian was sort of gearing up for this Oscar. Every time I call him Christian, I feel slightly weird for how personal. <laughs> I just have to say, just know that that's the subtext of this podcast is me feeling uncomfortable by the personal relationship I've developed with Christian Bale. So he was gearing up for this Oscar thing. So a lot of people wanted to profile him. And he is sort of famously not huge, not huge about talking about himself, not huge about talking about his acting process, (laughs) not really huge on talking to the press at all. I think he understands it's part of the job, but it's not his favorite thing to do. He's not one of those, you know, I'm going to turn on my movie star charisma and dazzle them on a press tour. And, and I see that as, a part of the job. I think he's sort of resentful. This is part of the job. Yeah. But anyway, there's an interesting New York Times article from 2010 titled Letting His Role Do the Talking. That's about Christian. And there were a couple of, there's a quote from David O. Russell where he was saying, and this gets back to the, is this performance, why this performance is more than just an impression. So David O. Russell says, Dickie has a whole rhythm to him, a music. Christian had to understand how his mind works which I do think is a really nice way to put it, that you are sort of like embodying the spirit of this person rather than feeling like you must mimic every single 
mannerisms, especially because mm-hmm. it's a person, you know, most people don't know. Yeah. The authenticity is it important to it's important to the actor, but not necessarily, you know, you and I don't know if his impression is great or not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. That is an interesting sort of task to do with other still living people. I mean, the the next time he kind of made the round at the Oscars was when he played Dick Cheney. Yeah. Which I think, I guess we could say right now, we're not going to do that episode. We're not going to do Vice, but it's a good performance. Mm-hmm. And I, it does feel like he tried to get into the soul of that guy, but also did it at a resolve where instead of, you know, he emerges from the fighter saying, you know, Dickie's a great guy. I want you all to go to his website. You can still train with him. And he, he emerges from Vice with, you know, utter contempt for Dick Cheney. Which- and says that Satan inspires his... Yes. Inspired his performance. Thank you, Satan, for inspiring my for inspiring so my funny. performance. Yeah. Well, and this is also the start of Christian Bale working with Amy Adams a bunch because not only mm-hmm. do they make American Hustle together, but obviously they make Vice together as well. So there's a little. It's fun. It's like their little origin story. That one scene where Dickie comes over and and makes amends with Charlene. You're like, oh yes, this is this is these two actors realizing that they want to work together. Yeah. One of my favorite little moments is. He's over there apologizing. I think he plays that scene very well. It's another scene that could go very over the top, mm-hmm. but he kind of reins it in. And there's a part where he's kind of waiting for her to come downstairs. They've been yelling from her upstairs window. He's down on the, her front stoop. And he turns around and kind of doesn't know what to do. And there's a guy with a dog walking there. And he's like, oh, what kind of dog is that? A cocker spaniel? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a great bit of writing, assuming that was in the script. But it really does feel like, yeah, that's what somebody would do there. They don't quite know what to do. They feel weird. This guy's watching them. I don't know. Let's talk to them about what their dog is. I think that probably if you're going to get hype about David O. Russell, it's going to be because of those little moments, little moments like that. I mean, there are parts of this that feel sloppy in a good way. Mm-hmm. That I think is where its charm comes in, in, in a way that feels true to life. Even if maybe overall, it's not a creative project that speaks to me in a huge way. I do admire those little those little moments and I lived think, in you know, moments. Yeah, Christian Bale. I can see why he, you know, returns to do that again. I think that's satisfying for an actor because mm-hmm. they want you to get all the way in on a character and then see what comes out of it, and like in the featured moments as well as the not featured moments. Well, and here's another. So there's another article I want to point to that is kind of a bananas article, also from 2010. It's an Esquire interview titled "Christian Bale May Kill Someone Yet," which <laughs> Hell is sort of. A title. of the premise of the article kind of goes in, I think, supposed, supposedly in a comedic way of sort of an, and leaning into the idea of Christian Bale being antagonistic and sort of antagonizing him throughout the interview and being mad that he won't open up more about things. It's a very strange, I don't think it's the sort of thing that would get published today, but it did lead to some sort of interesting, I don't know, for me at least, like interesting insights into what Christian Bale's like acting process is like, which I think does not always get the most discussion because he doesn't like to talk about it, as I think a lot of actors don't actually. Anyway, my one biggest takeaway from this is that, well, two takeaways. One, I don't think Christian Bale is a sort of like quote unquote method actor as we sort of colloquially understand that term, which Mm -hmm. I think people use the term method actor to mean someone who sort of like tries to live in their character for the entire process of making a film. And so if their character is experiencing something, they're sort of trying to experience that too. This is actually the opposite of what like method acting was when it started. It's a very weird thing where 
the term has almost just is there a word for that where the term has just come to mean the opposite of what it originally meant like originally the the concept of method acting was pulling from your own life to portray a character it was like bringing yourself into a character in a way and now it's become erasing yourself and replacing yourself with the character would so would stanislavski is that the original method yes here's the here's what i would recommend we're now on like a tangent and a tangent and a tangent, but right. I will get us back eventually out of this. What I would recommend, number one, everyone should read the Wikipedia page on method acting. It's very well written. I found it very informative. Not too long. Would 10 out of 10 recommend that. My understanding of method acting, both having done theater school stuff and then today having read this Wikipedia article. So you're an expert. Is, is that I'm a full expert. I literally have a degree in it and one Wikipedia page. You have this sort of development of acting that happens in Russia with Stanislavski in, like, the early 1900s. And it's basically the idea of acting up until this point feels very presentational. It's not very authentic. You're maybe you're on stage and there's, if you want to picture, you know, like a silent movie star, right? Like, it's somebody that is not looking for a necessarily emotional authenticity. They're, like, presenting a story to the audience. And so the revolution here is like, hey, let's live in our characters emotionally, authentically. Mm-hmm. Which I think nowadays would just be like what's called acting. Do you know what I mean? Like that's it's like th- it felt revolutionary at the time, obviously, but because no one does this sort of old school style of acting anymore, we take for granted that met- method acting in its original like method is just what acting is now. Yes, that has become the dominant paradigm. To not do that is, I think, considered very strange. To just yeah, say and I, you and yeah. it would be like a heightened movie that you're doing sort of purposefully mm-hmm. to do that. So then, oh, it's beyond dominant in uh, yeah. in film. It's like 99.99% of film, I think, is is done, at least in that find it true to life paradigm. And then like 90 to 95% of theater. Yeah. Other than maybe like your big, you know, showiest Broadway musical. Maybe you're getting more of that sort of we're just presenting this and not living in mm-hmm. its style. But for the most part, I think the sort of Stanislavski method of acting just becomes the dominant method of acting eventually. But as it comes to America... Even then, that's where it's sort of butchered for the first time, where you have these, like, American acting teachers who are just getting parts. They're getting early parts of a badly translated Russian method and really emphasizing sort of, like, the psychological aspect of this, which is this idea of, you know, for the first time, people are like, we should try to live, you know, be emotionally authentic in our performances, What's the best way to be emotional, emotionally authentic? Well, maybe my character's mom has died, but I've never had my mom die. So I can't, you know, just imagine that and immediately start crying. So maybe I'll try to, like, remember when my dog died and I felt really sad. And I, you know, Caroline, I'm playing this character, but I'll think about my dog dying and I'll start crying about my dog dying. But it doesn't really matter to the audience because the audience is perceiving me crying. So, like, kind of who cares about where that's coming from? So that kind of becomes, like, the Lee Strasberg, like sense memory kind of a deal Mm -hmm. that is like really only part of the Stanislavski method. And then you, but then you have other acting teachers who are sort of interpreting in a different way. So you have like Stella Adler, who's less so the like pull from your own life. She's a little bit more just like, think about how the character feels, think about the reality they're in and then try to play the truth of that reality, which probably is the more common like method today. And you have other people that, that sort of like, do method acting in different ways. But again, I think it's a little more similar to sort of acting as we just think of general acting today. And then somehow inexplicably, I don't know how you get the sort of current day understanding of method acting, which is 
you know, my character didn't sleep all night, so I'm going to stay up all night before we shoot this scene to live that experience authentically. And that's yeah. just like a sort of like macho thing that emerges. Maybe, maybe, I guess late 50s, 60s, probably more towards the 70s that that kind of becomes the understanding of it but that's just like i don't know where that came from i don't think that that's something that someone really taught people to do it was just something that people started doing and then other people decided that that was the only true and authentic way and you hear these sensational stories from movie productions which it may be one of those things where it builds upon itself even an illusory version of itself because i think this stuff is not reported accurately i think it gets into the cultural discussion and it gets to this point where it's like Oh, Daniel Day-Lewis, he thought that he was Abraham Lincoln the whole time. It's like, no, he was doing a job. He probably, you know, he understood, you know, maybe. So I never know where the truth is of who kept their accent on between takes. Mm -hmm. And it turned into like, oh, you know, he really went all the way into that thing. This mythos, you know, speaking of the Dark Knight builds around the Joker. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, he got lost in the character, which many people involved in the production would dispute um i don't i don't really know where the truth of this thing is well this kind of brings us back to the christian bale and the esquire article Mm -hmm. which part of the reason that article is antagonistic is because christian bale at this point he's like instead of writing these pieces where it's like christian walks into the restaurant you know with the air of someone that we used to get these like profiles that were just there were there really was just like you know, journalists writing a lot of their imagined understanding of this person. And I think understandably, mm-hmm. Christian's like, I don't really like when people do that to me. Can you just print what, can you just print this interview as, here's what you asked me, here's what I answered so that my words are there. Oh, do you and think it was his idea of, to do that? Oh, the half of the article is about how the journalist is annoyed that he has to print the article in that way. And there's wow. like a meta commentary of him pushing back against this notion that he would just publish this as... A straight interview. So yeah, interesting article. Anyway, so I think I think you're totally accurate that these things get reported on weirdly, and that gives these actors these weird reputations they don't really have, and that that's obviously a very frustrating thing to happen. But I think what sort of Christian Bale is articulating in this article and in the New York Times piece is that he does not feel like he's an actor who's going to just turn it on and turn it off, right? He's not going to be like, when I'm hanging out on a set on the fighter, I'm fully Christian Bale, and then I snap my fingers and I jump in and I'm fully Dicky. He's kind of like, I kind of need to warm up more than that. So maybe when I'm on set, you know, I don't think he's walking around like you're saying, be like, call me Dicky. I'm fully Dicky in every interaction I'm having with the crew. But I think he is like, okay, I'm going to kind of keep the vibe of this character in my being between takes because that's easier for me than going from zero to 100. Yeah. And so I think that is his, you know, he in this article, in the Esquire article, he kind of really clarifies like i'm not a method actor i'm not this person that feels like i have to fully live this but i do enjoy and find it helps my process to live in it a little bit and maybe more so than a lot of actors would and so he is sort of this middle ground but then i also think that he does really understand as that quote about mark Wahlberg represents like he understands his bigger role in the film and how to serve that which actually there's a Christopher Nolan quote from the New York Times article that says one of the great things about Christian is his refreshing lack of ego. He figures out how he can be useful to the storytelling. That often means he's a very generous performer, somebody who's playing the part with integrity, not to show what he can do. Mm-hmm. And I do think to bring it back to the fighter, that's what I enjoy about this performance for as big as it is. It does not feel like him going, let me show you how impressive of an actor I am. It feels like it's doing something loud 
for a reason. Yeah. And that makes it more compelling to me than a loud performance that is doing it for the sake of being loud. Yes. AKA Walking Phoenix and the Joker. Okay, well, I haven't seen the Joker, so I, I can't respond. I can neither uh, defend nor condemn uh, Joaquin Phoenix for that. Um, nor should we open the Pandora's box of discussing Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix here. We'll uh, do a miniseries one time. We'll do a retrospective one. Uh, okay. I like Joaquin in general. This is not an anti-Joaquin take. I don't love that performance. We're not we're not uh, looking to take down Joaquin on this podcast. but And there it is. There goes the train of thought. It's gone. Uh-oh. What were we saying? We were we were talking about how it's generous. It's generous. He's yeah. not just trying to show off what he's doing. Yeah, I I I I agree with that. <laughs> this is primo, I completely derailed us with primo our, podcasting right here with our um our walking chat. Oh, but yeah, funny. I do think that that this performance is sort of easy to miscategorize because it is showy. Mm-hmm. But is also good acting in the intentional acting, not in the like unintentional, I lived the character and then I, they, someone captured it on film and I didn't even realize kind of reputation that this stuff kind of gets. Yeah. Yeah, but it it is interesting the way that these things, not just the things themselves, but these things in the mix with the way they're talked about and the rumors that get spread around them, it becomes this sort of Ouroboros where people believe where he's then rewarded, he gets an Oscar for this performance, which I think probably you and I would rank this performance fourth of the four we've discussed already in terms of favorites. I mean, I would. I don't I don't love this performance more than Well, do I love it more than the Batman? I don't know. Do you think this is maybe I maybe I let me not speak for you. Yeah, I would say that this is a good performance. Actually, maybe that is my biggest takeaway from rewatching this film. I Going in, I was like, is this a good performance or is it just a showy performance? And pretty immediately, I was like, oh, no, this is really good. This is actually a really good performance. I'm glad he won the Oscar for this. I do think this is one of his best performances. So that's, I think, where I'm at with it. I guess I guess I am conflating, evaluating the performance with my feelings about the movies. Because this movie, is definitely yeah. the movie I have personally connected to, least of the ones we've discussed mm-hmm. so far. Maybe it is, maybe, I mean, it is a better performance than Bruce Wayne, probably, because there's just, as we said last week, not not so much, not so much going on with Bruce Wayne quite on this level. Um, and then it's hard to compare it with Laurie because he functions in the plot differently. Yeah, although I did compare it to Laurie. <laughs> do you like it more it or hard? less than performance? Do you like it more oh or less God, than Oh my God, don't make me, don't make me pick that. No, I think that this is a more compelling performance than Laurie. Laurie's a very charming performance. This is charming. What you said this earlier, which I think was actually sort of revelatory, what you said, charming but dangerous are the sort of roles that he's drawn to, Mm -hmm. which I think in some way speaks to every film we've covered, but does really speak to this performance in particular. And it's the sort of, it is the charm of it and how kind and sweet he is and his, his smart strategic mind and his relationship with his brother. It's all that stuff that makes it so compelling and so much more than just this caricature of this sort of like wacky crack addict who... Mm -hmm. It's what makes him different, feel different than the sisters, right? Like, we're supposed to laugh at the sisters. Yeah. But we completely understand all the nuances of Dickie. And obviously, a lot of that's just from the writing. But I think a lot of it's from the performance, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do we have anything right. else we want to say? Do you have a favorite Do you have a favorite scene from this movie? A Christian scene? 
Uh, my favorite scene is the first scene when it's a montage. It's yeah. improvisational. It's moving around. It's, uh, as I say, larger than life, but uh, in a way that is grounded to life. So I've kind of said that already. How about yourself? I really like the scene where he is in prison and Mickey comes to visit him, sort of tell him he's moved on from having him as his trainer. And then Dickie still tries to start, he starts coaching him and like giving him advice that actually is great advice for mm-hmm. his, the strategy he should use. And yeah. Mickey kind of calls him out and he's like, you're just, you're just trying to center yourself. You're just trying to make me do what you would have done. And Dickie's like, no, I'm applying strategy that would only work for you. Like I am still trying to help you throughout mm-hmm. this i just thought that was i think all the scenes with the brothers in this are really nice and that's one of the best ones yeah and so that that's one that really stood out to me i also like again maybe i'm speaking more from a filmmaking performance but i do think he does a good job in the scene where he's in prison on the phone as he listens to yeah. that fight and it's one of those moments where i'd gone into that sort of chapter of the movie being having sort of a lower estimation of it but it's hard not to get hype when he knocks that guy down and then everybody's cheering and Christian Bale's like yelling and all the inmates are like yelling and it's it's uh it's very energized you get wrapped up in it maybe that's why people love these movies so much yeah let me say one last thing yeah which I feel slightly weird about saying and I don't really know and I don't want to make this podcast too much just like speculating speculating about this the real life psychology of of actors but I do think this story of Mickey as sort of this person that his family has pegged emotional and financial hopes on and sort of having a loving but very complicated relationship to his family in the way that Mickey does. I think some of that to a much, much lesser degree of severity, but some of that might be true of Christian Bale's own life story mm-hmm. in terms of being a child actor. And being I think managed having, by his father, you said managed by his father. Yep. Wow. Who is a very charismatic and over the top, larger than life figure. As we mentioned before, goes on to marry Gloria Steinem. So like, you know, has his own thing that Christian Bale is trying to live up to, has a complicated relationship to, you know, various members of his family, and I think feels a lot of pressure. And even the extent of, like, in the way that Mickey sort of finds Charlene and she's a, a grounding force for him, I think you have some of that in Christian's life, like, getting married feels like it becomes the center of his his world and his sort of new family that he forms. And I... W- I this is exactly the sort of like question that no no one should ask Christian Bale because I don't think he would like it. But I do almost wonder if some of what drew him to this project was seeing a little bit of his own themes of his own life, at least reflected in Mickey's story. And even though he's not playing that role, sort of like working through some of that stuff in this movie, I would be I would be very curious to know if any of that rung true to him or maybe i'm just projecting and, and none of that's true at all yeah who can really say well you you're, it would be nice to know and you're right we will never know he does not <laughs> seem to uh encourage that line of questioning at all um Which, and, fair enough oh absolutely absolutely fair enough I, I as you said i completely agree the fact that part of the job of acting is also being a public figure is one of those things that's so baked into our culture that we forget that that's kind of a weird thing to assume. Yeah. That in acting, you should also have to create this public persona and end up in this situation where lots of people feel like they know you and are sort of entitled to your life psychology. Um, and I think he's clearly, you know, in, as you've shared some of the text of this, he clearly is wants to run in the other direction from that. I mean, he talks about mm-hmm. acting as a way to become invisible. And then he, in his sort of 
he's constantly very self-effacing in these public yeah, speaking moments. He is. <laughs> he, every time he says something like that, he then roasts himself for saying, ah, nice, nice fucking job. Uh, where, yeah. where, where does he say? He says, like, that makes me sound like a bit of a tosser. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to do my Welsh accent, which, as we know, is not very good. He's British, Ned. This is this is a fact the Esquire article gets wrong. He is born in Wales, but he considers himself okay. British and is mostly raised in England. I apologize. Listen, my little high school instincts to defend Christian Bale have to come out. So, yes, my British accent is uh, is bad. I mean, his accent is a, is a mystery. And when you hear it's so, you know, it's on that one and the tape where he goes off, it's so interesting because he's clearly been doing an American dialect for the film. So half in that same way that it's hard to shake off when you're in the middle of a mode, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what that whole blow up is all about, you know, sort of violating when you're being in the mode. Yeah. But he's, his accent is so mystifying in that certain words are coming out in an American accent and some are in a British accent. And that British accent is from someone who's been, you know, moving around all his life. Anyway. Um, what is really funny to me is that the SAG Awards when he wins, so he comes up and starts speaking in his sort of normal British accent. Dickie comes up on stage, and so they have a little moment together. Mm-hmm. And after that, you can see Christian literally not know how to get back into his own accent. It's like seeing Dickie and having a chat with him puts him right back in the mindset of imitating him. And so the rest of his speech is like half Boston accent, yeah. half then him saying like bloody hell and in it and like trying to get back into his own accent and completely failing. And it's like a very fun and weird thing to watch him try to grapple with on stage while accepting an award. So peculiar. I don't know if this is only for certain types of people who have a sort of a natural mimicry impulse or for all kinds of people, but a, a way in which I sympathize with that sort of challenge that actors face, I find that I. You know, after watching a movie with a certain style, do you feel like you internalize some of that? Like, when I would pause this movie and be like, I'm gonna go get a drink of water. You want anything? <laughs> I don't set out to do that. It is just yeah. like, I, it goes into my brain and it bakes around and then it comes out my mouth. I find that happening all the time. As a child, I would accidentally imitate people's accents and dialects. And then I was like, you can't do that. It's bad. So I had to train <laughs> that out. But I understand where that comes from. And I understand that maybe that's just something that theater and acting weirdos have baked into them and you see i'm doing it now i i I just i said weirdo i apologized whatever i have found myself recently saying okie dokie in response to any question and i'm living with my family right now and now they all have started saying okie dokie i don't know where i got it but clearly i gave it to them so even on that level of sort of like you hear someone say something and you unintentionally imitate it i think maybe that's a relatable little yeah. world to this well, acting acting it's world a, it's a weird world it's a weird business and uh and yet i think if we're not going to speculate about the psychology of these people then why are we even I doing mean, this podcast you're so right true. and there will be it's fair game. plenty more to speculate about next week when we jump back in time this is this is as far as we're going to go in christian bale's career we're going to leave you in 2010 But I think next week we'll probably do some maybe general chat about where he's at now. But we are jumping back in time to look at another Christian Bale, Christopher Nolan collaboration, 2006's The Prestige, which may feature Mm. more Christian Bale than people thought they were going to get when they first went in. But we will chat all about that more next week. And 
We will also introduce you, because that will be the end of our Christian Bale miniseries, we will introduce you to the next actor that we're going to cover when Ned takes Ooh. over the reins of this podcast. So you've got plenty I'm to look forward to. Really looking forward to uh, some of the things we have coming down the pipeline. Me too. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling or email us, rollcalling at gmail.com, and that is Roll, R-O-L-E. Next week, we'll be back to wrap up our Christian Bale miniseries by looking at the prestige. Until then... Head body, head body, head body, head body. <laughs>